I desire an interest in your prayers. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that won't get through all of the uh, points that we'd like to cover this morning, but I want to, uh, I, I'm glad that, uh, that you're all here this morning and actually had, uh, had two, um, two sermons and have sort of leaned toward this one. And I pray that it's of the Lord and that the Lord will bless it. But I'm glad that you're all here this morning because it, uh, it, affects, uh, it affects all of us. Sometimes we have messages that are primarily for the young folks. I mean, it's good for all of us, but primarily for the young folks. Or we have messages that help us when we get old. But this uh, message is, um, is about uh, something that we hold precious and dear. It, uh, I'm going to start and I'm going to go through at least some of our articles of faith some of our articles of faith. Now, in Jude, we're taught, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you, that means encourage, admonish, and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered Unto the saints. Now, if you, anybody here ever started a, a corporation, an LLC or something like that, if you've ever done that or had any affiliation with it, you know that in that corporation that there's the articles of organization or there's the articles of incorporation. Well, our church is not a corporation. There are some churches that claim that for tax reasons that they, they do. Our church is referred to as an assembly, and we don't, uh, we don't have the formality of a corporation. But the church has embraced some principles that we feel like, or our forefathers felt like, identified this church as a New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Um, Mount Carmel was started in 1934. Elder R.H. Pittman from North Carolina was the pastor that came up and there was an interested group of folks. It doesn't take a whole lot of folks to start a church. In fact, it takes one individual to have a desire, and then God begins to add to it. And so there were several families that had moved to Bel Air, Maryland from North Carolina. Most of the folks that were here in the early days were from the North Carolina, Southern Virginia area. We still have an influence of that. So when several of the families moved up here to get work, that grew up in the mountains or the hills of North Carolina, Southern Virginia, they wanted a church body where they could worship. And so uh, Brother Felix Irwin, Brother Phil Irwin's grandfather, went to North Carolina, and he was at a church meeting there, and he met Elder, uh, Elder Thompson, Sister Susan's uh, grandfather, and he was about 17 years old at the time and had started his young family. They expressed a desire to have services in this area. And so Elder R.H. Pittman came up from North Carolina, who was very instrumental in starting churches in the North Carolina, Southern Virginia area. 
Though, how many here were involved in Southampton when Southampton started? I mean, in the early days of Southampton, several here. It was almost identical to the experience. We've read some of the writings of Elder Pittman when Mount Carmel started. So when a church is started among the, in the South, it's referred to as primitive Baptist. In the North, it's been referred to as the old school Baptist. Before 1832, it was oftentimes referred to simply as the Baptist. Over close to where Sister Janet lives, there's an old building called Blackrock, particular primitive Baptist church. And in 1832, uh, between 1829 and 1832, there began to be uh, uh, a difference of of understandings about the doctrines of grace. And so they had a, uh, a parting of the ways between the old school and the new school. The old school holding to the principles that they had held that we believe we can trace back all the way to the apostles of Jesus Christ. Our desire here at Mount Carmel is to embrace and proclaim the apostles' doctrine. Now, it saddens me when I hear of a church that for one reason or another that was established in the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God that later on in later years, they depart from that position. It also saddens me when an individual that embraced the doctrines of grace part from that position. And it very much saddens me, and it doesn't happen very often, but once in a while, there'll be a minister among the primitive or old school Baptist that believed and proclaimed the doctrines of grace and then for one reason or another departed and went in a different direction. There's not many places, if any, that I know of that, that I can uh, encourage you to go and hear a message solely about the sovereignty of God. There are some things in our articles of faith that identify Mount Carmel. And as we look at those articles of faith, and these are the articles that our forefathers embraced in 1934 that were passed down. You can go up here just a few miles up the road to Welsh Track Primitive Baptist Church, the oldest Primitive Baptist Church in the United States of America. It started here in the, in the United States before the United States started in 1698. And our articles of faith almost mirror those of the Welsh Track Church. They almost mirror those of the Columbia Church started in 1792. They almost mirror those of the Wilmington Church, of the Old Brick Church. As we travel around the country and visit old school or primitive Baptist churches, one thing in common is that the articles of faith are very, very similar. Now, when we were traveling in upstate New York, up in Kingston and Roxbury and up in the Catskill Mountains, I would oftentimes read the articles of faith of some of those buildings that no longer meet. They would have them posted on the wall, and I'd read the articles of faith. 
And one thing that was interesting is that in one of those churches, I remember that an article was added that I don't have a problem with, but it was added to them. We have 11 articles that uh, represent what Mount Carmel embraces and believes. This particular church had 12 or 13. And one of the articles was that it was an admonition to parents to train up children in the way of the Lord and lead their children in the right way. And that was one of the articles that was included in the Articles of Faith, that the parents were instructed by the church body to train up their children in the way of the Lord. So I I want and, and we'll address this here in just a minute. But this is this is inspired by God. And we'll look at that because that's one of our articles that it says that we believe that God's word is the inspired word of God. And, and we'll get more into that. But that simply means that God breathed. God breathed his word. He inspired men to write his word. And anything that I write is probably going to have, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not going to be correct. I can't even talk correct, much less write. And so it, there's a lot of flaws in it. And I realize that. But, and anything that that any man writes is going to have flaws because we're flawed. But God's word is correct and it's right. And it's what we run back to. And it is our rule of faith and practice. Now, the articles of faith, although they have been embraced and they've been pinned down, And they represent as much as possible what we believe the articles of faith are not inspired by God. They're not. Men wrote the articles of faith and the wording may not be exactly right, but the principle and the point, uh, the principle of what the scriptures teach is, is what they're trying to convey. Now, I feel... A little bit of a uh, of a responsibility. I feel a little bit of a responsibility to make sure that um, uh, after we met Anthony Massanelli, he's 108. Brother Danny said, "Just think, Brother Stephen, maybe you can end up being the oldest preacher on earth." <laughs> that was really encouraging, <laughs> but. Realistically, if I base it upon what God's word has to say, I have on average three score and 10. That's 70 years. And he says, and if by reason of strength, four score, that's 80 years. And he says that that comes with much labor and sorrow, those extra 10 years, that they're not always the most pleasant if you have that extra 10 up to 80. So that being the case, I don't have all that much time left. And I feel like that it's my responsibility and Elder Aquino's and Elder Andy White to teach these truths that were taught by our forefathers, by Susan's grandfather for almost 50 years here at Mount Carmel, so that when I'm off the scene or if my mind begins to wonder, my mind begins to go, That these young men are going to be grounded in the doctrine of grace. 
And if somebody comes to visit and they bring in a doctrine that's not what we believe is taught in God's word, that they kindly share with them that this is not what we believe, but this church was set up on these principles. Now, I didn't initially understand all the principles. I did not grow up among the old school or primitive Baptists. I grew up in an Arminian setting. And, and the doctrine that I was taught is that you had to help the Lord out, that you had to accept the Lord, and you had to go down through a checklist in order to get your name uh, in heaven. And you might could even lose your position in heaven. And that's all I knew. I didn't oppose the doctrines of grace. I just didn't understand the doctrines of grace. So once I begin to understand them, they become very, very precious to me. And I pray that while I'm here and then after I'm gone, that Mount Carmel will be established in the faith. And that if Mount Carmel continues another 50 years, that it will still be contending as Jude says, for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. I would be wrong to come in and try to change what has been taught by our forefathers of the truth of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the first one. I, in, fact, in fact, I'm going to read through all of them. When, when folks come up and, and, and tell me that uh, they want to follow in baptism... Uh, I generally always, this is not a requirement, but I believe it helps them. And especially if it's folks that did not grow up among primitive Baptists like I didn't, that we go through the articles of faith and I read the articles of faith. And then I say, if you have any questions, let's talk about the articles of faith. And I had one individual years ago that as we were reading through the articles of faith, we, uh, we came to one article and he said, I don't agree with that. I don't embrace it. And he said, and I've decided I don't want to be baptized. Well, that was the time for him to decide that was before he had been baptized. And then he found out what the church embraced and believed. So there, let me, let me say this. There's, there's one requirement that uh, the scriptures give us for being baptized. There's one requirement that's given for being baptized. We're called in Acts chapter 2, we're called to repentance. And so if there is sin in our life, we repent, we turn, we change. But there's one requirement that's given in Acts about being baptized. You can't just live any kind of way and then uh, follow the Lord and be a member of the church. But the one requirement that's given in God's word is that you believe and embrace that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins, then you are a perfect candidate to follow in gospel baptism. But when you follow in baptism, I, I love talking about baptism. I, 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 in fact, what I love even more is going to baptisms and witnessing baptisms. And boy, didn't we have some wonderful baptisms last year with uh, on the river and uh, other places as well. It's just a wonderful season of baptisms. But when you're baptized, there's, two, there's, there's many things that take place, but there's specifically two things that take place. When you're baptized, you're professing that, yes, Jesus Christ is your Lord. 
Now, you're not necessarily accepting him because he already accepted you first. He accepted you when you were unacceptable. He did. And he chose you when you were unlovable and when you were unholy and when you were not pursuing him, he chose you and he drew you to him. And when you follow in baptism, you're simply saying to those that are around, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I have a hope in glory and I want to be identified with the followers of Jesus Christ. In this life, I want to be identified with brothers and sisters that are, uh, they've got problems. I'll, I'll tell you, I was so disappointed when I found out that after I was baptized that that. Church members still had problems. I really thought after I was baptized that that I was going to be entering into with a group of folks that didn't have any struggles with sin. And I thought that I wouldn't have any more struggles with sin. And I have to tell you that before the day was over, I was greatly disappointed and discouraged. But when you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ with a body of believers, You're identifying yourself with folks that have struggles just like you do, but they're headed in a certain direction. Now, this is how we're described. Brother Danny reminded the folks in New York yesterday that one of the scriptures that was used is that we're described as a peculiar people. Another definition of describing us is that we're Pilgrims and strangers. Kind of sounds like folks that don't really have it together. And we don't of ourselves. But we have a really good guide. We do. And when we don't have it together individually, oftentimes we travel along that journey as a group that has lots of problems. The church is not a place for saints that don't have problems. But the church is a place for sinners that have struggles along the way. Now, when you follow in baptism, there's two things that specifically, one, that you've identified yourself as a follower of Christ and you you also identify yourself with with God's people. I'll be the first to tell you, and I don't mind this being on on tape and be broadcast wherever Brother Tom does broadcast it. But I believe the family of God is much larger than the primitive Baptist. In fact, I believe the family of God is so large that we're taught that it encompasses a lot of different people out of every nation, kindred, tongue. In fact, the family of God is so big you know, Pat-like family reunions. Can you imagine what he's experiencing now? That in heaven it's described as being as many as the stars of the sky or the sands of the seashore. So to me, that's a big family. Kind of like Ace and Carlo, you know? That's a big family. You identify yourself with Christ and with this little nucleus that he's left here on this earth called his church. Now, the church is not the building, and I'm thankful that it's not. I mean, you can look at our building. It's got 
it's in need of a lot of repairs. And I'm so glad that that's not representative of the church of Jesus Christ. When God gets through with the nucleus of his church, he makes us whole. He changes us. He cleans up all the blemishes, all the imperfections along the way. And when he takes us to heaven, he says that he's changing us from a corruptible to incorruptible, from a mortal to immortal when he changes us. So when we follow in baptism, we are saying, I'm identifying myself with Christ and with his church and his people. I'm going to read through the articles of faith and maybe we'll get through a few of them. Uh, I'll read read through the 11 that we have. Sister Kathy is uh, she's so good with computers and, and she has everything just at the push of a button. She's going to print out the articles of faith. So we'll have those hopefully next week for folks to pick up. Uh, we're also working on an updated directory and uh, uh, she's going to hopefully make all the corrections on that as well. And we'll have that. And it has our articles of faith in the in the directory. It says, we believe, number one, that there is but one true and living God. And that in the Godhead, there are three persons. The Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that these three are one. We'll go back to that if time permits. Number two. We believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God, and we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. Number three. Now, Bray, I want you to listen up on some of these, and Brother Danny, and uh, some of the other young men that are here. Because after we go through these articles of faith, uh, it may take several weeks to do that, but I'm going to ask the young men... Don't have to be young, but uh, ask the brethren to each pick some of the articles of faith and then explain it from their understanding. Because when I'm off the scene, I want to know that there are some of these folks that are able to understand and explain what we understand the scriptures to teach. So please try to listen up. And, and if you have questions, we'll talk afterwards about it. Number three. We believe that God has always pursued his own infinitely wise plan in all of his works and his ways, and that he will ever continue to do so. Hence, all things brought to pass by him are but the result of his holy, wise and determinate counsel from eternity. It just simply says that what God purposes to do, God does, and he has the power to do it. It does not mean that God causes us to sin. That if we sin, we do it of our own disobedience, of our own choice, and we cannot blame God for that. God is not responsible for our sin. If you have anything about you that's holy, then you give God the credit for that. If you do anything that's good, you give God the credit for that. But don't you lay charge to God for your sins. You take that yourself. Number four, we believe that Adam, though created in the image of the master who pronounced him very good and did of his own volition willfully transgress the law of God. Now, Adam had a helper in that, and we'll see that along here after a while as we get into it a little bit deeper. But it says that Adam willfully transgressed the law, and as a consequence, 
Adam, he became fallen and totally depraved, a totally depraved creature, and all of mankind was with him. He represented all of mankind. So basically what it says that Adam sinned and death passed upon Adam and Adam represented all of mankind and death passed upon all mankind. And so it leaves us when it says that we're totally depraved. We believe in total depravity. Now, it's hard to imagine when you see a little child that they're that that they have any depravity. Uh, uh, but you can later ask the parents and they'll begin to acknowledge it along that uh, depravity begins to manifest itself eventually. But we believe that that we are not a little bit sick, not a little bit ill, n- not a little bit in bad shape, not a little bit depraved. But because of Adam's sin, we believe that we are totally depraved. And what does that simply mean? It means that we're totally dead. It does. And that we don't have anything good about us. And that we can't make ourselves any better. We can't improve the situation at all. We are totally depraved. So that's what it says right here. Uh, Number five says, we believe that redemption, regeneration, sanctification, justification, and salvation are by virtue of of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the mediation of Jesus Christ, and in no other way, and that the graces of the Spirit are referable to the church of God. It just simply means that, that, that the price for your sin has been paid for, and you're heaven bound, and you will owe it all to Christ. You do. Number six, we believe that now, now, here and I'm not. There's not going to be time today to get into each one of these, but but boy, this one was uh, this one was really tough for me early on. At least the principle was tough for me, and I have to tell you, I did not realize that this was taught in in God's Word. It had to be shown to me. In fact, there's been a lot of things that I didn't realize were taught in God's Word that uh, later were shown to me, either by others or by ministers or by reading God's Word, and this is one of them. We believe that all the saints, we've already acknowledged that we believe it's a large family. We believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And that they were that they are elected to eternal salvation according to the foreknowledge of God. And that they will be called with a holy calling and that the righteousness of Christ actually imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit so that none of the heirs of promise can be eternally lost. What's it saying? We believe in the security of the saints of God, that those that Jesus Christ chose from before the foundation of the world, that he wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, and that nobody can add any names to it or take any names out, and that if you've been Uh, represented by Jesus Christ upon the the cross of Calvary, then you're heaven bound. And heaven's going to be your home because of what Jesus Christ did for you, not what you do for him. Number seven, we believe that all of the elect of God were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. Number eight, we believe that immersion... 
upon profession of faith in Christ in the name of the sacred trinity by one duly authorized by the church to administer the ordinances of God in the church is gospel baptism and that and, and that only and that all persons so baptized shall continue to walk circumspectly or rightly and shall have right to partake of the Lord's Supper. Number nine, we believe there's two ordinances in the Lord's church that we can see in the scriptures. One ordinance is that of baptism. And the second ordinance is that of the Lord's Supper. And that's what it's saying right here. Number nine, we believe that the church of Christ is a corporate body. And we believe that it has it possesses full power to govern herself and having the exclusive right to receive and discipline her own members, knowing no rule but the word of God and that she is therefore independent. Now, I have been on a flight before and sometimes somebody next to me will begin talking, especially if they see that I'm reading the Bible and they'll begin to ask questions. And I've had it uh, presented several times when uh, they, they say, well, what uh, denomination are you affiliated with? And I'll say primitive or old school Baptist. And they'll say, well, where is the headquarters for primitive Baptist? Well, right here, our article tells us right here that our headquarters is not on this earth. And our headquarters is not another church or another denomination, but our headquarters is in heaven. Now, isn't that a pretty good place to have your headquarters? I mean, some of you have headquarters down in Washington, D.C. and travel down there and headquarters in New York City and, and, and Baltimore and places like that. But I tell you, good news, your headquarters for the church of Jesus Christ is in heaven. And this church is accountable to our headquarters, which is in heaven. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have fellowship with sister churches. We enjoy the fellowship. I could travel down through the south all the way to the west coast and enjoy sweet fellowship with the Lord's people. But those churches, nor association groups or any other group like that, governs Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is um, is accountable to God itself. And that if we get off track, then Mount Carmel is accountable to God and God will judge Mount Carmel if we do that. So uh, some say each church is autonomous. That's that's um, that's a- another term. The next one is we believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, and that the happiness of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked will both be eternal. And the last one. We believe that the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should, this is a charge for us right here, that we should live soberly, that means right-minded, serious-minded, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Does it matter how we live? The scriptures say that it does. Not in order to get to heaven, but because you're a child of the king and because you're heaven bound and because you've identified yourself as a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it does matter how we live. And when we don't live the right way, we should never get the idea. Well, it's not going to affect anybody else. 
When we don't live the right way, it affects those around us. It affects our family. It affects our friends. It affects the people we work with. But it also affects our church family as well. Brother Mark and I were taking Elder Compton to Wisconsin, and we were 30,000 feet in the air. And uh, all of a sudden, the plane just dropped. And when that happens, I start praying. And Elder Compton didn't seem to be too worried. Of course, he was 101 years old. I leaned over to Brother Mark and I said, when something like that happens, I, I begin to wonder if I'm the, the Jonah on the plane. You know what happened to the boat that Jonah was on? Brother Mark, as sympathetic as he is, he said, there's the door right there. <laughs> it does affect the others that are around. It does. It says, we believe that the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. And that it is therefore the duty of all of the church members to be jointly and severally engaged in every good work for the glory of God and the honor of Christian religion. It just simply means that we work together to encourage each other in our walk with the Lord. Let's go to the first one. We'll look at the first one. Touch on just a couple of verses that will support the first one right here. We believe that there is but one true and living God and that in the Godhead are three persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and that the Holy Ghost and which three are one. Uh, two verses that will that will go to uh, support that, although there's many, many more. In uh, Matthew uh, chapter, um, chapter 28, as Jesus Christ is, um, is uh, giving a charge to the disciples right here, he gives a charge to them, and he says right here, he says, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them... To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded of you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now the first point right here that is worthy of noting right here. Is that it's the responsibility of the gospel minister. It is the, go the responsibility of the gospel minister first to teach. To teach. Uh, to teach God's word. What is it that we're called to teach? We were looking yesterday in New York about 2 Timothy and Paul giving the charge to, to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, you make full proof of your ministry. He just simply means you take what God has given you, you share it with other folks. And he says, and you do it right and you do it diligently. So the gospel minister is called to teach the gospel. And then he says, if there's folks that come along the way that uh, profess their love for the Lord, that have a desire to follow in baptism, he says, then you as the gospel minister, then you baptize. But it doesn't stop right there. He says, number one, you teach and then you baptize. And then he says, uh, thirdly, he says, and then you teach again. And so that's for those of us that have been baptized that we still need to learn. More and more again. But the point that I wanted to get to right here is that it says, and, and Bray, you'll remember this when we went to the river and baptized. 
that when we go to the river and baptize, we say this, that I baptize thee, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We believe that the Trinity represents God the Father, God the Son, who is Christ, God manifest in the flesh, and then the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost as well. Now, one more verse. And when, uh, when uh, Brother Steve Aquino did a wonderful job the other day about uh, talking about uh, uh, ordination when uh, an individual is ordained, and I really I appreciate a lot of good points that he made. But when, when I was ordained uh, at, the, uh, at the church in Lubbock, Texas, way back a long time ago, uh, Brother Mike Rogers was ordained at the same time to the ministry. We were ordained two years earlier to the role of deacon, and then two years later we were both ordained to the office of the ministry as well. And we're sitting in the Lubbock church and... Uh, uh, Brother David, I think your granddad was there at our ordination service. And um, we're in the Lubbock Church, and, and of course, you're nervous, and you, you, you almost can't even remember your name. There were, I believe, uh, 400 folks that attended the ordination service in, in West Texas. And one of the parts of the ordination service is that you're, there's several parts. One of them is that you are charged, you're given the responsibility to as a as a minister, but you're also questioned. I don't like question sessions. I mean, I'm just perfectly honest with you. I don't, and I especially don't like it when I'm on the hot seat. Brother Mike and I were sitting in the front, and they began to ask the questions. And the first question was addressed to me, and Brother Mike's probably five or six years younger, and. They said, Brother Stephen, do you believe in the Trinity? And if so, what is your supporting text? So I answered that I believed in the Trinity. Brother Mike sat in there. And I went to 1 John chapter 5. And it says, there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, we've already seen, or the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that these three are one, and that there are three that bear witness in the earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And it goes on down, and First John chapter 5 teaches us as, as good as we can understand that in heaven there's three. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And yet it's, it's hard to understand. I've heard it described this way. It's kind of like a pie, that the pie is whole, but it's cut in three different pieces. Still the same pie, but it's cut in three different pieces. And so I began to try to comment on the, uh, the Trinity and, and share with folks that, yes, I believe this very important principle. And so our pastor, Brother George Johnson, who was doing the questioning, he said... Uh, Okay, Brother Mike, would you talk to us about the Trinity? And Brother Mike said, I agree totally with Brother Stephen. <laughs> that was it. So Brother George didn't ask the questions just exactly the same going forward after that. Well, the second one that we'll, we'll touch on and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. The first one, we believe that God, there is one true and living God, 
And that in the Godhead, there are three persons, God, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and that these three are one. Um, number two, and this is, this is really good. You know, if you're, if, uh, if you're talking to other folks about the Scriptures, you almost need to have this as one of the starting points because, boy, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's hard to really begin to talk about it if you can't agree that there's at least some basic principles to, to, to begin on. It's been a, a learning experience for in meeting some of the people in New York with the, the fellowship and the meetings up there because... In the South, where I grew up, and Brother David can, can uh, confirm this, most people had at least heard about Jesus Christ, or they'd worshiped Jesus Christ, and they'd been in church in some fashion or another, in some type of Christian organization. And in New York, that is not the situation. And it has, it has exposed us to opportunities to learn how to have conversations with people. And so here's a really good one right here. Brother Harder started uh, over 60 churches in the Philippines and congregations. And he said this was a really good starting place right here. Number two, we believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God and we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. And we'll run over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, and Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul just says this right here. And so here's a real good uh, discussion point and starting place right here, is that we believe that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that God breathed it, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and that this Scripture is profitable. That means it's beneficial. That means it's helpful. That this Scripture is profitable for doctrine. We want to know what, what the doctrine is in the Bible. The Bible itself declares us what God's doctrine is. And so what it says right here is all scriptures given by the inspiration of God, it is profitable for doctrine. If, 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 if we can't trace what we believe back to what the apostles taught, then we're missing the mark somehow. We ought to be able to take the principal points of the doctrine. We ought to be able to take the articles of faith that we have, and we ought to be able to run to God's word, and we ought to be able to support it with God's word, with, with God's word. If not, we need to change it. We need to uh, adopt a new set of articles of faith. But he says, we believe that the scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for doctrine. It's also profitable for reproof. Do you ever read God's word and you feel condemned or you feel corrected when you read God's word? Well, then if that happens, it's just simply doing what it's supposed to do. That's what it was designed to do. Now, somebody else may try to correct me and I may not take it uh, quite well. But when I read God's word and God's word corrects me, I don't have any place that I can argue about it. So 
God's word is profitable for doctrine. God's word is profitable for reproof, for reproving. And God's word is profitable for correction. And then lastly, it says that God's word is profitable for instruction in righteousness. You want to know how to live? God's word tells you. You can get a variety of opinions from a variety of people about how to live. Folks can tell you how you should or shouldn't do something based on their experience. But if their experience can't be measured up to God's word, you better take God's word because that's how God designed it. God designed his word to tell you how to live. Michael, Katie, you want to know how to have a happy marriage right here in God's word. If you follow God's word, you're going to have a blessed marriage. God's going to bless you. I know it's probably down the road, maybe a week or two or a month, but I don't know how long. They do things fast. I'm telling you, they really do. I believe the Lord's in the matter with Michael and Katie, and I believe that from early on. But, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're moving fast forward. They really are. Uh, but, but I want to tell you, you just take God's word. You have a problem, you go to God's word. And you ask God to lead you and guide you. I kind of believe God puts you all together. And I believe God will keep you together. You want to know how to take care of your parents. Tristan, you want to know how to take care of your mom and dad when they get to where they need some help? Brother Justice shook his head yes. You go look at God's word. And it will tell you how you're supposed to take care of your parents. Calvin, Elsa, you want to know how to raise these precious children that God's blessing you with? You go to God's word. And that's your instruction on how to raise up your children in the way of the Lord. You go to God's word because that's what it's for. God created it for you to know how to live. So we believe that God's word, the Old Testament, the New Testament is inspired by God and it helps us in every area of our life on making the decisions and living our life in such a way that as best we can, we honor the Lord. We're not perfect and we see that when we read God's word and it corrects us, but it gives us the direction on how we do live. Well, that's one of the articles of faith that this church has stood for for 85 years. You might say, well, why aren't we a little more perfect than we are? Well, we just know each other real well. We know our imperfections. I'm thankful for what our forefathers stood for. And I pray that we'll be able to take the same torch that they passed down to us. I feel like there's a a weighty responsibility to pass it down to the young men and the young women that are coming up so that this church, if God tarries, waits another 50, 7,500 years before he comes back, that this church right here will still be contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 
Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.